Father, would you draw near now as we prepare to open up this holy word and receive your truth? Lord Jesus had many hard sayings, and I, I pray that our flesh would not be a hindrance to receiving what he has to say. Lord, let us have open hearts, just ready, just ready to receive all that you have to say today, Lord. Speak to us, for we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were talking about the lifestyle of a true Christian, the path that God calls every truly saved person to walk. And he sums it up in chapter 9, verse 23, by saying, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, we have a hard time with the concept of taking up our cross because we're removed by 20 centuries from the idea of crucifixion. So we think, what in the world did he mean? Take up your cross daily. What is the Lord getting at there? But you know, if you were a Jew living in the first century, you wouldn't have any confusion or doubt at all as to what Jesus meant. Because they actually saw people that took up their crosses. A person who took up his cross was a man who had been condemned to die, and he was carrying that cross to the place of execution where he would be laid out on it, Nails will be drilled through his hands and his feet. He'd be lifted up and he would be set in a hole there and left there until he died. Sometimes it would take several days before that would take place. But he was on a trip and he wasn't coming back. He was going to the place of death. And Jesus is telling anybody who would follow after him that he, you need to know something before you get into this gig. <laughs> you need to know what it's going to be like if you follow me. If you want to follow me, this is what you have in store for you. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up that cross upon which you're going to die, and you're going to have to follow wherever I lead you. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not yet willing to be my disciple. And let's make no mistake about it, there's nothing different about a disciple than any other ordinary Christian. Every Christian is a disciple. Every disciple is a Christian. We don't have two levels, the super spiritual and the non-committed. Everybody is a disciple of Jesus. So if Jesus is calling you to follow after him, he's calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. Now, what did he mean by dying, though? If the cross is the instrument of death, what kind of death is he talking about? Is he talking about physical death? He can't be because he says he has to die daily, and you can only die physically once. So it's a different kind of death he has in mind. Well, what kind is it? Well, in verse 23, he says, let him deny what? Himself. That's where he's talking about the application of the cross to the life of the Christian. It's in the area of self. He must deny self. He must die to self. You see, up until the time you become a Christian, self is on the throne of your life. Self has all the rights, all the authority to do whatever it wants to do within reason. You know, if you go kill somebody, it doesn't have the right not to be sent to jail or to prison. But what I'm saying is that it basically chooses what it wants to do. But if Jesus is saying, if any man wishes to come after me, self gets off the throne gives all the rights to Christ, and Christ begins to rule the life of this newly converted person. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound real attractive to me. You know, how many people are you going to convince, yeah, I want to be a Christian. I want to die to myself. I want to 
give up my entire life for Christ, renounce any authority over my life, and give him the rights to do whatever he wants with me, yeah, let's do it. it it's not an alluring, compelling kind of a statement to make. But yet, Jesus has attracted people by the thousands who have been willing to give up their physical lives as martyrs throughout the centuries. We're probably talking the hundreds of thousands of people who have been willing to die for Christ. In the first 300 years of the history of the church, there were 10 different great persecutions by the emperors. And Christians were fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum as all the people in the stadium would watch. Sometimes they were lit as torches in Nero's gardens because he would race around the garden in his chariot naked, shouting and yelling. He was probably a crazy man. But he liked to persecute Christians. Uh, Christians have been burned at the stake for heresy, such as believing that God saves us by grace and not by works. Or that the Bible should be given to every person rather than just the clergy. So people who believe that have been burnt at the stake by religious institutions over the last 2,000 years. True Christians have, en have endured much persecution. They have suffered for their faith. So my question to you is why? Why have people been willing to do that? Why are millions of people every year willing to yield their lives and surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as they come in faith to Him? Well, I want you to notice that in our text today, every, every verse we're going to be looking at begins with the word for. Verse 24 says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Verse 25 says, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. The word for is a synonym for the word because. The word for is telling us a reason for something. So he, Jesus gives us his proposition in verse 23, and then he starts listing reasons for that proposition in verse 24, 25, and 26. And that's why I've entitled this message, Three Reasons You Should Follow Jesus. Because Jesus gives us three reasons here why all of us should follow him. And that's what we want to look at today. Those reasons of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that these reasons would so grip your heart that they would compel you to be willing to follow him no matter what the cost, no matter where he leads, because following him is the greatest possible privilege and joy that any person alive has today. So here we go. Here's the proposition. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him because, number one, it's going to make the difference between losing or gaining your life. It'll make the difference between losing or gaining your life. Look at verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So let's just take this verse phrase by phrase. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life. Now who is he talking about there? Who's the person who wishes to save his life? He's the person who does not want to obey Jesus' words in verse 23. Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, he must do three things. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
And then he says, for whoever wishes to save his life, that is the person who does not want to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the person who wishes to save his life, but he's going to end up losing his life. Isn't this a, a strange paradox? The one who wants to save his life loses it, and the one who gives up his life finds it. He saves it. And this is one of those sayings of Jesus that he repeated over and over. It's one of the most often repeated sayings of our Lord in the four Gospels. So this is the person who doesn't want to give up the rights to do what they want to do. They don't want to give Christ authority over their life to dictate to them in the areas, well, in every area. In the area of uh, how I use my time, my money, what pleasures I am allowed to enjoy in life. Um, what I should be doing with free time, how I should be using my gift, what the Lord wants me to invest my life in. It's it, every area of life it comes under the lordship of Jesus. He doesn't want that. He wants to run his own life. And he also doesn't want to embrace the sacrifice and the hardship and the rejection that he's going to face if he embraces fully Jesus Christ. Because there is a difficult road that true disciples walk. They're not always accepted by others because of their allegiance to him. So this is the person who wants to preserve his life. He wants to spare his life. He wants the luxuries and the comforts and the ease of life, the fun. He wants everything to be nice and easy and cool. This is the person that wants his best life right now. And he's not willing to wait for the future to have it. He wants it now. And Jesus said, he's going to lose it. Now, I think there's three senses in which the person who wishes to save his life will lose it. Number one, he's going to lose his physical life. He may try to gain his life, but eventually he's going to lose it because 100 out of 100 people all die. Every one of us is going to die. <laughs> We're growing old. How many can say amen? You realize that? You've got the aches and the pains and the poor eyesight and everything that goes with it. <laughs> Yeah, we're all going to die, and so we're going to lose our life. We can't hold on to it. It's a, it's a fleeting, crazy idea to think that somehow we can have this fountain of youth and always be perpetually young. We're headed towards death. We have the seeds of death within us. Secondly, we're going to lose our life in the sense that we will lose the one opportunity God has given to us to live the kind of life that he wanted us to live. Real life, abundant life. The life where we know and commune with God and serve God and love God and glorify God. We've got one chance at that. And so the person who seeks to save his life by seeking the easy route, the comfortable route, he's going to end up losing that one chance, that one opportunity to know and love and serve and glorify God. But thirdly, He's going to lose his life in the sense that he's going to lose any opportunity or chance for eternal life. The person who loves this present life is going to end up forfeiting everlasting life. And so if we embrace, well, what's the opposite of eternal life? It's eternal death. The Bible calls that the second death, which is the lake of fire. Either we receive everlasting life, a place of glory and happiness and joy and delight in God forever, or the place of separation from all of that in a place of punishment, eternal conscious punishment in hell. 
And Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. So, who's the one who loses his life for Christ's sake? We know the answer by now, don't we? He's the one who obeys Luke 9.23. He's the one who denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Jesus. But notice, Jesus said, he who loses his life for who? For my sake. For Christ's sake. When that Buddhist lights himself on fire and dies to show his devotion to his religion, but it does not do it because of Christ's sake, just does it because he wants to demonstrate how devoted and religious he is, it's meaningless, it's worthless in the sight of God. Or when that Muslim straps on those bombs because he wants to take out some other people, and also because he thinks he's going to wake up in paradise with 72 dark-eyed virgins on green pillows, which is actually what they believe. When he does that and he wakes up, I don't think he's waking up in paradise, folks. It's worthless because he didn't do it for Christ's sake. That's the only thing of really eternal value is what we do for Christ's sake. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is so true. And so Jesus is emphasizing the fact that whatever you do must be done for his own sake. Now, if you look at Mark's gospel, Mark adds this. Whatever, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels. He throws in those three little words, and the gospels. So folks, ask yourself this question. Am I losing my life for Christ and for his gospel? How am I actually losing my life for the gospel? Ask yourself some hard questions this morning. What am I doing at all to lose my life for Jesus' sake and for his gospel? So his gospel runs through this earth, so Christ is made famous and glorious, and that people are drawn to him to worship him. Piper likes to say, uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, if we want people to worship Christ like they ought to, like he's worthy of, that's why we have missions. That's why we send missionaries to the four corners of the globe. That's why we witness and share our testimony and hand out tracts and talk to people here around us. It's because to make Christ famous for his sake, for his gospel's sake. So whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, he is the one who will save it. He's going to find real life right now in this lifetime. Real. Life indeed. The only life worthy of being called life. It was said of Whitfield that other people were half dead in comparison with him. Or half alive. I mean, that's really how it goes. But Whitfield was fully alive. I think he, he experienced life indeed because his life was consumed with God, his glory, and the gospel. That's what Jesus says. You want to find life? Give yourself to Christ. Give yourself to his gospel. And you'll find it. He's going to save his life. So if you want life, anybody want life this morning? Everlasting life? Glorious life? I remember reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's an immortal classic. If you've never read it, you should. Spurgeon read that book over a hundred times, it said. He loved that little book. Anyway, the very opening pages of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, this is an allegory, and Christian is under this conviction of sin. He's got this load on his back and it's oppressing him and he's grieved over it. And he meets a man called Evangelist who says he needs to flee the city of destruction and go through this wicker, 
uh, wicked gate to a cross, and there he'll lose his burden. And so he starts off running from the city of destruction, but his wife and kids are crying out after him to return. Come back! Come back! And anybody remember what Christian says? He says, life! Life! Eternal life! And he keeps on running. You see, he had been, uh, he, he'd been uh, just taken up and gripped with the, with the idea that he, of all people, could have life, everlasting life. 1 John 5.11 says, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That puts it pretty clearly, doesn't it? If you have the Son of God, if you have Jesus Christ, truly, you have life. If you don't have him, you don't have life. And we're not talking about a superficial verbal confession of Christ. We're talking about a person being in Christ, which is way different. This person has been born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has baptized him into the body of Christ. Jesus now is his head. He is one with Christ. There's been a union that's taken place. To that person, he has life. The very life of Christ is his. So if you want life, that's the only place to find it. And so one of the reasons that Jesus calls us to make this hard call to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him is because it's going to make the difference between losing or gaining life. I, I don't know if you're convinced. I don't know what I can say to convince you about this. We've been brought up in such an easy believism Christianity that we think anybody who just goes forward at an altar call has life. Friends, don't be deceived. Nothing could be further from the truth that some verbal confession or some act, standing up or raising your hand, somehow means you have life. You have life if Christ is in you. You have life if you've been born of the Spirit, if you've been joined to Him. And so every person who has been joined to Christ denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows Jesus. And that's one of the ways we know whether we have life. Life results in this kind of lifestyle. And if we don't have that lifestyle, it must mean we don't have the life to bring the lifestyle. It's the very life of Christ in us that causes us to walk this path. We simply walk the same path that our Lord walked. If we're one with Him, the disciple walks the path that the Lord ahead of him walked. So it means the difference between losing or gaining life. Secondly, it means the difference between losing or gaining your soul. Verse 25. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now the reason I talk about soul here is because if you were to uh, compare Matthew and Mark's version of this verse, they say it differently. They say... What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? The question is, what are you really profited if you gained everything in the world but lost your own soul? Jesus wants us to ask that question. Is that a gain or a loss? Is that a good decision? Get everything the world has but lose your soul? Or is that a horribly miserable decision? I find it interesting that he says, 
For what is a man profited? As though Jesus is appealing to our sense of, of uh, logic, <laughs> common sense, to be able to answer this question and to choose that which is most profitable for ourselves. So, add it up. What's most profitable? Is it most profitable to have everything in the world right now for 60, 70, 80 years and then go to hell for all eternity? Is that the best deal you can make? Or is it most profitable to lose when it comes to all the things the world has to offer for this short, brief lifetime, but have eternal glory afterwards? What's most profitable? Think about it. Jesus is calling us to think about that. Now let's try to imagine what he meant here by gaining the whole world. Imagine if you had owned everything in the world. I mean, you weren't just rich. You were super rich. You weren't just Bill Gates. You're Bill Gates times a million. You own everything. You owe every piece of land in the world, every hotel, every restaurant, every beachfront property. You can do whatever you want. Go wherever you want to go. Money is no object. Everything is yours. And all the prestige and the honors and the accolades that come with that position, they're all yours. You've gained the entire world. You can eat at five-star restaurants every night. You can go to Hawaii whenever you feel like it. You, you can have anything this world can offer you. And Jesus says, well, what's it profited? If that's true about you, but you lose your soul. After five minutes of burning in hell, do you think you're going to make, have made the right decision? Or would you have given anything, anything, to escape that place and find life and get salvation for your soul? That's exactly what it would be like. A person who's there for five minutes will be screaming in and, and agony. We have examples of this in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was in agony and torment in the flames. Jesus is wanting us to really add up what is really more important, eternity or time. This present world that lasts briefly or the life to come. And the way we live will tell you and I what we really value. Do we really think that the life to come is more valuable? That's going to be reflected in the way we live, in our priorities, in what, how we spend our life, what we do with our time and our energy and our gifts. And if you can look at your life and you really don't see it in your life, you really don't believe it. So, losing or gaining your soul is dependent upon whether we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Think about that little word forfeit. When I played Little League as a kid, once in a while, when we had a game, uh, the opposing team would come and they only had eight players. And unless they could find a ninth player by the time it was time to start that game, the umpire would call the game. He'd say, it's forfeited to this team over here. And what does he mean by that? It's lost. It's irretrievably lost. In other words, you can never do anything to go back and cause that forfeit to become a win. It's always going to be a loss. When Jesus said, if you seek after the riches of the world, you're in danger of forfeiting your soul, he's saying you're in danger of irretrievably losing your soul for eternity. Now think about people who really tried to gain the whole world. Alexander the Great. He was undefeated in battle. One of the greatest 
military conquerors of all time, of history. Uh, it was said that at, at his greatest peak, he had conquered over 2 million square miles. I mean, try to imagine the vast territory that he had been able to conquer. But yet at the age of 32, he caught a fever and he died. Do you think he figured he had made a good trade? He gained the world. But unless he knew Christ, and I don't think there's much evidence to support the fact that he did. Well, actually, he lived before Christ, so he lived two or three hundred years before Christ. So, Yeah, he gained the world, but what good did it do him? Or Hitler. Hitler was on a rampage to try to extend his kingdom in every way that he could, but when it became apparent that defeat was imminent, he committed suicide, shot himself. Now, he had lots of the world. He had millions of people willing to follow him. He had gained prestige and power and riches and wealth, but what good did it really do him in the end? I want you to see that there's a, a really wonderful implication of this verse. It's not explicit. <laughs> But I believe it's implicit. So our text says in verse 25, What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? The implication is just switch that around. Yes, it is very, very possible for a person to lose their soul. It's also possible that you can save your soul. And I'm not saying that you do it by your self-efforts, but that your soul can be saved. If you will... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Your soul is saved. If you won't do that, but instead pursue, pursue the riches of this world in its place, well, then you're in grave danger of losing your soul. So, verse 24, why should we follow Jesus? Because it's going to make the difference between gaining or losing your life. Secondly, verse 25, because it's going to make the difference between gaining or losing your soul. Thirdly, it's going to make the difference between gaining or losing your Savior. And what I mean by that is there's coming a day when Christ is going to return and He's going to judge all men. And whether you have been ashamed of Him and His words in this lifetime will be one of the criteria that He uses to decide whether He is going to own you on that day. Let's read it. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus Christ is going to come back one day. His glorious second coming is yet future, but he's going to return, and he's going to come in glory. When he came the first time, he came in humility. He's coming back in glory. He's coming in His own glory, the glory of His Father, the glory of the holy angels. And when He comes back, there's going to be a reckoning. Over in Matthew, we have a little tidbit that Matthew adds to this. And Matthew says, And then He will repay every man according to his deeds. So when He comes back in glory, it's to repay every man, that means you, that means me, that means everyone, according to their deeds, what they've done how they've lived. What we have done with our life is the criteria that Christ is going to look at on Judgment Day. He'll judge our deeds. And if your deeds are evidence of the fact that you had faith in Him, living faith, you will be saved. If your deeds prove the fact that you had no living faith in Christ, you will be damned. 
So he's coming back in glory. He's going to repay every man according to their deeds. And one of the criteria is whether we were ashamed of him and his words during our life here, our sojourn here on the earth. So to be ashamed of Christ, what, what is that all about? That means to be embarrassed. To be embarrassed by Christ or embarrassed by the things that he teaches. To not be ashamed of him means that we stand up for him. We own him. We take a stand, a public stand if necessary for him. So if we have not taken a stand for Jesus in this life, if we have not owned him as ours in this life, there's coming a day when he is not going to take a stand for us and he's not going to own us as his. That's really what he's saying. This is when he'll say, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. You were ashamed of me. We had no relationship. I never knew you. You go over on that side where the goats are. Remember it says when he comes in his glory, he's going to separate like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Okay, you goats, corral you over here. Sheep, you come over here. If we are ashamed of Christ and his words during this lifetime, we go over with the goats. And we receive our eternal sentence as one of them. So the Son of Man will come. He will judge all men. If we have not stood up for Him, we will take our place as one that He never knew. And just try to imagine that scene for a minute. Imagine every person who has ever lived from all time, from Adam until the last person. So we're talking about billions of people. And we see Christ come in His glory and we see the, all of us, if we've died before Christ comes back, He's going to raise us. We'll be there. Our spirits will be rejoined. We'll be resurrected from the dead. All men will be standing before Him, and He'll start sifting one from another. And then He's going to judge all mankind. And the way I imagine this in my, this in my mind is He's going to have some kind of a screen, and He's going to play our life. <laughs> Put so-and-so's life up on the screen. Let's see what it's all about. And He'll look at our life. And he'll weigh it, and he'll evaluate it, and he'll judge it, and he'll say, did that person love me or not? Did they believe in my son or not? What did they do with Jesus Christ? It's going to be an awesome, can you imagine that situation? Where billions of people are looking on as you're singled out from that crowd. You're made to stand in front of them. Your life is played. God sees it, and then he gives you your eternal sentence. The Son of Man's going to be ashamed of us if we are ashamed of the Son of Man. But there isn't another implied blessing here. Look at the flip side. If we are not ashamed of Christ and His words in this life, then what's true about us? He won't be ashamed of us when He comes. Instead of being ashamed of us, He's going to welcome us. He's going to say, hey, you come on over to this side. You owned me during your lifetime. You made confession of me. You fought the good fight of faith. You publicly stood for me when it was important. Here, you come on over here. You stand on this side. You are one of mine. So let's think about some of Jesus' words today, and let's ask ourselves, are we ashamed of them? Because he says we can't be ashamed of him or his words. Here's some words of Jesus, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Do you know why I, re I read those words to you? Because our culture is sliding down this, uh, this, this toilet. It, it's sliding down so fast that we can hardly keep track of it. Where as a culture, as a society, we have embraced the idea that a man can marry a man and everything's okay. Or a woman can marry a woman. And that we are not to be um, intolerant of anybody for their view. We are simply to accept everyone and no matter how unbiblical or wicked that choice happens to be, we're simply to accept. And if we don't do that, we're going to be persecuted by the people that believe opposite to the way we do. I've been thinking lately that, you know, I grew up thinking that persecution was going to come from the communists, you know, here in America. Someday we're going to have it from the communists. I think it's going to become, come from the people who are way over on the liberal side who believe in gay marriage, same-sex marriage, homosexuality, just an alternate lifestyle. I think it's going to come from that side because those are the ones that are the most vocal and the most vehement and the most violent. Now, what about you? Are you ashamed of Jesus' words? Jesus taught that a man should be joined to his wife and the two of them should become one flesh. He believed in a man marrying a woman, not a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman. Jesus believed in different sex marriage, not same-sex marriage. Do we stand up for him and for his words and embrace what he taught? Or are we embarrassed about it when we are under pressure out in the world? Maybe it's on your job. Maybe it's in the office and there's pressure coming down and you can feel it. Hey, we need to take a stand for Jesus and Jesus' words. And it may get us in trouble. We may be persecuted before too long for taking, just, just believing what Jesus taught would be enough to get us persecuted. What about this one? Matthew 19, 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Are you ashamed of those words of Jesus? See, our culture today says there's nothing wrong with divorce anymore. It used to be that that was a, a crime. It used to be that you could be prosecuted if you were willingly to commit adultery. And here Jesus is talking about divorce. And so we have so accepted the idea of divorce in our culture that it's like, it's just, it's just any old thing. It happens all the time. We don't think anything about it. Jesus taught whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anybody here that may have gone through a divorce. I'm simply asking you, are you embarrassed of Jesus' words? Do you own his words and say, that's right? Lord, you're right when you said that. I embrace that. I agree. Yes. And if I've committed, uh, if I have divorced in the past, have I repented of that? Do I own divorce's sin and have I repented and am I seeking to do whatever I can to make it right today? Sometimes you can't make it right because you've remarried and you'd have to commit another sin to go back to your first wife. It gets so confusing. But are you embarrassed or ashamed of Jesus' words on this score? Because the culture says something different? What about Jesus' words about everlasting hell? Matthew 25, he said, These shall go away into eternal life, the rest into eternal punishment. He talked about the furnace of fire where people are going to be cast. He said it's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of outer darkness. Jesus talked about this constantly. I'm amazed when I just read through the Gospels. It's like he was, 
he was driven by the knowledge that there is an eternal hell that people are going to, and he was on a mission to save some of them. He came down from heaven to save his people from that place. Are you ashamed of the idea of hell? When you're trying to share Christ with someone, are you ashamed to mention that fact and to warn them that that's a place you're going to go unless you turn your life around and turn it over to Jesus Christ? That's some of Jesus' words we have to be willing to embrace. What about Jesus' words when he said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No man can come to Jesus in faith and be saved, according to him, unless God his Father draws him and brings him. Or Jesus said in another place, All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will. Now, on the one hand, nobody can come. On the other hand, if you were given by the Father to Jesus, you're going to come. That's what Jesus taught. He also said, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There must be a divine opening of the eyes. There must be a choice allowing a man to see Christ in order to know Him, according to Jesus. He told Peter when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, no man told you that. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he opened your eyes, he allowed you to see that. It's a gift from God. So the, the words of Jesus where he teaches us about sovereign grace, that in and of ourselves we're unwilling and unable to come, but through His sheer mercy, gracious mercy, apart from anything within us, there's no reason within us God should have ever opened our eyes and let us see Christ. Jesus teaches us these things. Are you ashamed of those? See, in the, in the church today, that's something that is not very popular. If you were to start telling people that's what the Bible says, that's not a popular thing anymore. Most people do not believe those things. I should know because I grew up believing the opposite way and it was in the, the year 1991 where God opened my eyes to see these things and he, he changed me. He changed my whole Christian life by seeing that, that truth. But are you ashamed of those words? Are you embarrassed by any of that? Jesus had all kinds of things to say that weren't easy. All kinds of things. That most things he said <laughs> were hard things. Let me just conclude by, by bringing up some hindrances, things that are going to hinder us from making the decision to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. Verse 24, the hindrance of the desire for worldly comforts. He said, the man who wishes to save his life will lose it. So, who is the man who wishes to save his life? He's the man who wants the comforts and the ease and the pleasure and the easiness of this world. He wants everything on a silver platter. He just wants luxury. That man's going to lose his life. It's the hindrance of wanting worldly comforts. It's the person who doesn't want the hardship, the sacrifice, the suffering that is necessary to follow Jesus wherever he leads you. And you know, in order to embrace denying ourself, it's going to take a new affection in your heart. Thomas Chalmers was a very famous preacher of the 1800s, and he preached this sermon called 
the expulsive power of a new affection. And what he meant by that sermon is that you will never be able to lift yourself up and do these things that Christ commands in your own strength and power. What you need is the expulsive power of a new affection. So he's talking about Christ himself needs to expel this old affection for the things of the world by a higher and bigger and greater affection that he births in you. So if you want to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, to be able to do that, you need, you need a vision of the glory of Jesus to see him for who he is and that expulsive power will drive out lower affections in your life. The second hindrance to doing what Jesus called us to do is the desire for worldly riches. That's in verse 25. Some people will not follow Jesus because to do that means Jesus becomes Lord of their life and to do that means that he owns everything I've got. I no longer get to make decisions about how I spend my money because it's not mine, it's his. I'm just a manager for him. And a person who really comes to grips with that and doesn't like that won't follow Jesus. It'll become a hindrance that will sway him from following the Lord. Jesus taught how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples thought, well, Lord, who could be saved then? They, they figured if the rich people, those are the ones closest to God, because God had blessed them so abundantly with all these riches. So, Lord, who can, who can be saved? Do you remember the Lord's answer? With men, it is impossible. Impossible. It's not just hard. Salvation that comes from man is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can even save a rich man. God can save poor, He can save rich, He can save anyone. And He can convert them and He can change their heart and He can lay them in the dust to where they flat out just get before the Lord and surrender their life to Him and say, well, whatever you want. I believe it was C.T. Studd, I might be wrong on this because I'm going from memory, but I believe it was C.T. Studd who was very, very wealthy. And he, when he was converted, he gave it all away and went to some place as a missionary. And it was... For us, I mean, he was a British person, so it was in pounds. But for us, it would have been in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. He just gave it away and went. I mean, that's what it takes. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to lay down, and give up what you have to him, and say, okay, whatever you want, I'm a blank check, Lord. Just tell me. So the desire for riches. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have wealth and still serve God because when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So Paul doesn't say, instruct those who are rich in this present world that they can't go to heaven because they're rich. No, he didn't say that. He says, this is how you use your wealth. You use it for God and his kingdom. Remember, for Christ's sake and his gospel. You take whatever God has given to you and you lay it out for him. So, another hindrance 
to following in the path that Jesus calls us to follow is the, the hindrance of a desire for worldly riches. Be very careful if you find that enticing you and luring you and drawing you away from obedience to Christ. Be very, very careful. Thirdly, a desire for worldly approval in verse 26. Because if we're ashamed of Christ and His words on that day, He's going to be ashamed of us. There will be this temptation. You're going to face it, and I, have, I face it. All of us face this temptation not to stand up for Jesus because we want to be approved of by other people. We want their acceptance, right? Nobody likes to be rejected. That's why we're so bad at witnessing, <laughs> because we don't want anyone to reject us. That's why we don't stand up for Christ more, because we have this distaste for anybody disapproving of us, and I, it's, it's just like we're hardwired that way. Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 42, said, Many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Why? Because they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's why they wouldn't confess Christ. That's why they wouldn't stand up for Jesus. They wanted the approval of the religious leaders of that day more than they wanted God's approval. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that leading me away from the path of true discipleship? I, I don't say what I ought to say. I don't stand up for Christ when I ought to do it because I'm, af I'm afraid of rejection. I don't like it. I don't want it. Folks, what has the Lord shown us this morning in His Word? Let's just sum it up. He's shown us that He has called us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him because, number one, the difference between gaining or losing your life depends on it. The difference between gaining or losing your soul depends on it. And the difference between gaining or losing Him as your Savior, who will take a stand for you in the final day, depends on that. And you're going to face the temptation to go after riches, to go after comforts, and to go after man's approval. And if you go in those directions, watch out. Be very, very careful. Repent. If you find yourself this morning headed in one of those three directions, repent this morning. Turn to God. Ask Him to cleanse and forgive you and to turn you anew in the right direction. So what will you do this week? God calls us to deny ourselves and obey Him. When we are presented in a situation where it's either viewing pornography or seeking moral purity, what decision will you make this week? If you deny yourself, you know what decision you'll make. If you're presented this week in a situation where you either have to lie in order to not get into trouble or tell the truth, in order to deny yourself, you know what decision you have to make, right? What if it comes down to the, the decision to either be lazy or to work diligently as unto the Lord. You know what decision you have to make if you're going to deny yourself. Or what about when you know that somebody needs you to serve them, but you just don't want to, and you just want to do something else? To deny ourselves means that we, we become the servant of all, like our Lord was. It all comes down to Jesus' words, 
If any man wishes to come after me, and I assume that because you're here this morning, there's some level of interest in your life to come after Jesus, this is the way we do it. Deny self, take up cross, death to self, and follow wherever he leads us to go. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning to be faithful followers of the Lamb, that we would be willing for him to lead us wherever he would have us go, wherever, whenever, to whomever. We, we pray that we would consecrate our lives afresh this morning. And whatever gifts you've given to us, we would consecrate them to your use, that they would be used for Christ's sake and his gospel's sake. We pray, Lord, for a work of the Spirit of God to sanctify us, make us different, make us holy, make us like Jesus. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.